Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett. Today's Wednesday, November 23rd, the day before Thanksgiving in the United States. And today we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators for the past seven days. Obviously, last week was Open Doors Week, and that always means a flurry of activity surrounding data and other stats and facts about international students in the United States, U.S. students studying abroad, all of those fun, fun data points come to, come to bear during International Education Week. And we'll talk a little bit about that in our stories today, but we covered a lot of that last week in terms of uh, first reactions to it. But uh, well, we will ask, answer, ask and answer three questions that uh, we think will help you on campus better understand what the, the, what the future holds for international education in the U.S. Now, as we do each week, we take our news stories from, uh, that we cover in question format here on the Roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern. And I'll, the name of the newsletter is called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And I'm dropping the links to three different items, some ways you can go about getting our, getting our newsletter. Uh, first is our SMIE Consulting website, uh, going to the uh, slash subscribe tab, adding your information in and getting the newsletter delivered in your inbox on Monday morning. Uh, the second link I'm dropping is the actual uh, email version of that newsletter that you'd get. And we also, for those who prefer to get their international edification via LinkedIn, we have a LinkedIn version as well with over 800 subscribers now to that newsletter. So we encourage you to make sure you include these news, news stories in our newsletter uh, in your weekly reading, um, whichever format you prefer through email or LinkedIn. Uh, we are happy to accommodate you and subscribe you to our newsletter. So that newsletter, all the SMIE news fit to share, that stands for Social Media and International Education News, the name of the company. And we focus on those, we usually have about eight or nine social media stories, uh, 15 to 25 uh, international ed stories, oftentimes where the overlap is between those two uh, areas. And then we come up with, from all of those news stories, we come up with the themes for our roundup here on Wednesdays. I want to give a special shout out to those watching live today here on uh, either Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. Thanks for being a part of the conversation. Happy to take your questions as part of this uh, uh, this uh, news uh, news roundup here. But also uh, want to thank those that uh, watch on repeat on either the social any of the social media channels or uh, listen to our audio only podcast version uh, via your favorite podcast provider. So very grateful that you're making us a part of your weekly journey. Now let's get to our first question of the day, and it is, how are numbers looking for fall 23? Uh, I know it's early, and believe me, uh, I know when I get these questions from uh, administrators at, uh, at, uh, at, from the university, uh, it often is uh, one like, oh, really? You're asking me now? <laughs> but no, seriously, obviously everybody wants to know, and everybody needs to keep their leadership informed as to what the trends are in terms of numbers, where the, where the peaks and valleys are that might be coming our way. Uh, in the coming year and when the next class is uh, we're actively in the middle of recruiting it now uh, they're beginning their applications to our institutions they're uh, weighing up their decisions between competing institutions in terms of offers uh, and then in the spring hopefully making the right decisions and choosing where to come in a to a place that's right for them 
But uh, what we always do, at, the, at least at the undergraduate level, uh, there isn't a, kind of a running total that we get like UCAS in the UK gets of, uh, of applicants in. Uh, <clears throat> that's, that, that's truly universal because in the UK there's one application form you fill out uh, for up to, up to six or seven uh, institutions in the U or programs, I should say. <clears throat> In the U.S., we don't have that, uh, as as we know. We're very decentralized, and uh, we look look to common indicators of what uh, what uh, common factors there might be in uh, application trends uh, this year. Certainly, the news coming out of the pandemic uh, we saw reflected in the open doors data, uh, particularly in the fall snapshot survey. We saw the increase of nine percent uh, in new numbers this fall from the surveyed institutions, and those institutions represent over half of the enrolled international students in the United States. So those are likely the trends that we should see a year from now when Open Doors comes out for 2023. Uh, but what uh, th that is an overall number. That's not undergrad. And uh, numbers for undergrad are the, really the only ones we get uh, early doors enough to make, start making some predictions. Now, uh, the, one f the one that we're referring to today is from uh, Inside Higher Ed as a with a story about Common App numbers. Uh, Common App, for those not familiar, about 900 U.S. institutions are part of. Uh, that has allows students to use the same application, international students included, the same application information to apply to multiple institutions. So uh, what uh, we're looking at in terms of data, data points for uh, for this year, uh, what Common App has done because of the pandemic, the 2021 and the 21-22 year, they've kind of uh, taken those out of the formula and are looking just at pre-pandemic 2019-2020 applications and then uh, looking at uh, current year's uh, data. So uh, from uh, overall data the, to the United, or for the United States, or I should say common applications in general, uh, the first uh, tranche of numbers so that uh, applications are up 41% uh, as opposed from 2019-20 to now. 41% uh, increase in the number of students who are applying through the Common App. Uh, they're now, uh, I said over 900, they're 841 members uh, for uh, purposes of this study. Uh, yeah, so only it's, yeah, <laughs> I should say Common App has more than 841 members, but only those same 841 that were members pre-pandemic and pandemic now are included in the mix. So as I mentioned, they're about 900 uh, overall for members of uh, Common App. But again, this is just for undergraduate applicants. Uh, the good news is uh, first-gen apps are inc have increased uh, by 43%. Uh, Underrepresented minorities are up by 32%. So really encouraging data there. Uh, we now look at um, they, the uh, information we have on international applicants is kind of scant in this, but it's, a, it's always been a good indicator, frankly, of where application trends are going at the undergraduate level. And uh, uh, the good news is app international applications are uh, more than uh, triple that of uh, the rate of increase is more than triple that of domestic applications. So 63% more international applications this year, 2022-23, as opposed to 1920. So that's encouraging. Uh, leading countries, uh, home countries by applicant volume were China, India, Nigeria, Ghana, and Canada. 
Now, China, a lot of those are uh, students who are applying to some of the elite institutions in the United States, uh, tend to be uh, trying to get those selective, institution, selective institutions to take them, and they are all on, the, almost all of them are on the Common App. So interesting on that map, on that, on that uh, list are Nigeria and Ghana. Uh, certainly, Nigeria and Ghana not in the top uh, top ten uh, of uh, of international applicants. Ghana is not even in the top twenty five uh, uh, source countries for international students. But at the undergraduate level, Nigeria and Ghana. Ghana is I think number eleven or twelve on the uh, top sending countries to the United States. But good to see. Two African countries represented in the top five uh, uh, countries, source countries for students that are applying to uh, the U.S. via Common App. So that's uh, a good early indicator. So that's uh, that increase of, I should say again, that's 63% more than the applicant applications we had in 2019. Uh, so that overall volumes up. There was a common app that was down a couple of years uh, with the pandemic, so that's why they're not including that. But at least pre-pandemic to now, uh, up international applications are up 63%. China has always, I think, in the last decade or so, led the way in terms of numbers. Uh, but India, and uh, this is an important data point here too, uh, they are um, uh, they're the number two source country overall for international students in the United States. Uh, they will soon become the number one uh, with, within the next year. Uh, I predict uh, they're actually right now, as of this fall, looking at the SEVAS by the numbers report, uh, they were within 11,000 of uh, where China is. Uh, I think it was 251, uh, 251,000 Chinese students in the U.S. from the SEVAS by the numbers September report to uh, 240,000 Indian students in the U.S. Uh, by the same report. So we'll see what happens, uh, but Indian applicants have traditionally, 80 plus percent usually, uh, have been uh, designated uh, international, our, our graduate interest, uh, applying for master's or doctoral level programs. So to see India as the number two country for undergraduates, uh, undergraduate first year applicants is also encouraging. And little known fact, uh, India is actually the number two source for undergraduate students in the United States, not just the number two overall, but number two for undergraduate students after China. Uh, that, uh, that lead is a little bit larger. Uh, it's probably about 50,000 or so uh, between India and China, uh, 80,000 to 30,000 currently from this, this current SEVIS uh, by the numbers data. So uh, keep an eye on India. It's growing uh, in interest in, for bachelor's degree studies uh, as, a, as a percentage of their overall total. It's, it's not as an increase because grad went through the roof this past year and probably will continue to grow uh, as the greater majority of Indians coming to the U.S. will be for graduate. But in terms of volume, uh, India is a huge destin huge source country for U.S. Uh, bachelor's degree programs. So uh, it's worth keeping an eye on that. And if it's not already on your radar, I'm going to be doing a session at AirSea um, in Los Angeles next month uh, for um, on the Indian undergraduate market, along with Manisha Zaveri uh, from Career Mosaic and uh, Derek Alex from University of Houston. So encourage you to join in on that session if uh, you're attending AirSea. And we'll have more on the Indian market. But certainly, as far as the early numbers for fall 23, at the undergraduate level at least, uh, applications are through the roof, 63% up pre, from pre-pandemic pre levels. So I think that's a real good marker for where interest is going and where uh, hopefully enrollments will follow this coming fall term. 
So that's enough for question one. Uh, question number two is uh, an even more relevant one. Will Chinese student, students return to the United States? Anyone who's been in international ed for more than five years, six years, has seen the Chinese numbers uh, coming to the United States consistently decrease. Uh, this was even pre-Trump. Uh, uh, numbers were starting to, uh, interest, interest was starting to wane in terms of new students. But certainly during the Trump era and uh, during the pandemic, Chinese numbers have fallen off a cliff. Uh, so what the question on everyone's mind is, will Chinese students return to the United States? And it's not a simple answer uh, for most people because it's there's a lot of data points that you got to sort through. There's a lot of tea leaves that you got to read in terms of interest in, within China. There are numerous surveys that say, uh, well, maybe maybe China is uh, is slipping. Maybe China is is on the way back. No, this is just a pause. So we'll take a look at all of all of those to see what we're what the what we're what we're talking about here. But feel, I feel fairly comfortable saying that China is never going to go away. Uh, it will always be a major source of students for the United States. Just in terms of sheer volume again, China uh, as a, as a, a population uh, has always been valued education. A couple of the news stories, uh, one of the news stories, the University World News story that I'm sharing in the chat uh, has, a, has a really good take on the, on the history of education in China and how it's evolved, particularly at the higher education level, yet there's still this thirst for overseas education amongst the Chinese population in terms of what they value. The Chinese diasporas around the world are enormous, uh, and every Amer major American city uh, in the Americas uh, has a Chinatown. Uh, Canada to down to Chile and everywhere in between has Chinatowns. So there's a huge diaspora populations uh, in the United States, across the Americas, around the world, and most Western uh, speaking, even into major parts of Africa. Uh, in conjunction with their Belt and Road Initiative, there are Chinese uh, uh, diasporas in those nations as well. So uh, it's clear that uh, when you have a quarter of the world's population living on 8% of the world's arable land, as one of the articles points out, uh, there's, this, there's always going to be a need for exploration uh, and exploration and settlement and uh, immigration. And that's part of the Chinese character in terms of uh, spreading their, uh, their message, uh, spreading their influence, uh, both uh, privately and publicly. The, they make that uh, an important part of their, 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 their their mantra as a people. And uh, they've always been explorers. Uh, they were some of the earliest explorers in, in the world, uh, f finding other nations and uh, even having some of their money wash up on the shores of Oak Island off the coast of Nova Scotia. Uh, for those who, who know, you know. Uh, but in terms of uh, will Chinese students return to the U.S., I think what we've seen, and the article from University World News makes the point that their, their perspective is that uh, the numbers that have, of drop-offs during the pandemic have been almost exclusively, in their eyes, uh, pandemic-related. Uh, I would say there's a mix of politics in there, too. For some, some folks, there's uh, the issues of safety that have uh, scared off others, uh, that's uh, anti-Asian hate uh, that has happened in the United States and other countries uh, that has scared people off. Uh, so I think it's a little bit simplistic to say it's all pandemic related, but certainly what we see now 
the interest is still there in in China. No, most definitely. Uh, the challenge has been right now that there are still quite significant travel restrictions happening that restrict internal movement within China for for students and families, and uh, certainly not people coming in to try and recruit. That's almost an impossibility these days, even with the reduced uh, uh, quarantine times. Uh, down to five days and then three days further of home quarantine. So you've got to pay for more than a week's worth of home quarantine if you're a visitor to China. And so for us, that's, that's, uh, that's not a reality. No one has budget for that. But in terms of Chinese students wanting to come, there are still restrictions uh, in terms of travel uh, that are preventing them from coming. Uh, that's why there aren't there aren't the huge numbers going to embassies and consulates, which have maybe one or two day wait, wait times now for student visas, whereas opposed to India that has up to a year at, at one point, but that probably will be back down to a couple, three weeks by the summer. But in terms of um, China's appetite for the West, I think there's, it's still there. Certainly the number of Chinese going to uh, the UK has, uh, has, has grown dramatically in recent, recent years at the detriment of maybe they were turning off the US and looking at the UK more. Uh, but the, even then, within the UK market, they're seeing changes away from undergraduate like we have in the US to a more graduate program, which means they're working twice as hard because graduate programs are typically one, one year programs, certainly the master's level in the UK. So uh, they have to keep a churn and burn. They can't build up numbers really uh, because they, whatever they recruit one year is gone the next. So for us in the US, uh, obviously we have four years undergrad, two years plus for master's and doctoral programs. So it's a long, lengthier stay for those students. So we get more mileage out of them uh, that do come. But uh, what I will say is the numbers that uh, the Open Doors data certainly reflects uh, the change in, in the numbers. And they, there's, a special, there's a section in terms of places of origin. And, and China is now 31% of the total of uh, international students in the United States. Uh, and that percentage has been shrinking as India grows closer. And keep in mind the Open Doors data is a year-old data from 21 to 22 academic year. Uh, the Sevis by the Numbers report shows that, as I mentioned earlier, there's only 11,000 gap between China and India in terms of total students in the U.S. right now, uh, whereas this one shows that there's about a 10% gap, uh, which is uh, about 50,000 students, according to the old uh, to the open doors numbers. So those two countries are, are quite significant. There's still almost in the U.S. as of the open doors numbers. 300,290-plus uh, Chinese students in the U.S., uh, and those numbers will, will, have, will drop again for next year's Open Doors, just of the, uh, what we're seeing from SEVIS by the numbers. But what we, still, what we do see is uh, an attitude from the U.S. government that China internally is, is beginning to open up uh, and potentially allow more students to travel, and when those floodgates open, we should then see a resumption. Uh, I will say anecdotally, uh, we've had, I've, I've certainly had conversations with folks in China, uh, organizations that work there that uh, have, have, have also reflected the beginning, that it is beginning to open again, uh, slowly, but it is. Uh, at UNLV, we had a visit from the, uh, from folks from the, uh, from the Chinese embassy in D.C. that visited our campus uh, at the beginning of November uh, and had some very productive meetings with our team there. Uh, this came about because I had met with them at uh, one of them, one of their staff at the Education USA Forum in D.C. in August. Uh, then they reached out to me mid-October and say, hey, we'd like to come. Uh, we want to explore partnerships. Uh, and I think part of that is uh, recognition on the part of the 
the Chinese government uh, and, and kind of not damage control, but reputational control, uh, damage control, damage to reputation that had been done. Uh, there's uh, obviously been a lot of p bad, bad press around Confucius Institutes and spying and all these wonderful things that uh, tend to get politicized and really bogged down uh, opportunities for collaboration. But this willingness for them to come to visit our campus and really ex uh, have the frank conversations about what we can do together and some of the hurdles that we've experienced and what we can what can be done to maybe eliminate some of those hurdles. And it was a very open meeting uh, and we look forward to what that potential exists uh, again. And there may be significant groups of students that come out of these conversations with other groups that we're working with in China uh, as a result. So uh, it's, uh, there's, I think, a new openness again, uh, whereas the government in China, certainly uh, President Xi is turning more inward and is turning more insular, ins insulating himself more from the world. Uh, the students and the appetites in universities are certainly more than willing to engage internationally again. So it's just a matter of how much leeway uh, they are given by the government. So uh, the sign from the embassy folks coming out to campus uh, and visiting us and expressing a willingness to work with us and uh, develop uh, partnerships is certainly promising. Uh, I mentioned to our senior leadership, I can count on one hand the number of times in 29 years I've had an embassy contact us wanting to come to campus and visit. Uh, it's usually the other way around uh, for a major, major sending country. So yes, I think uh, Chinese students will return to the U.S. and uh, perhaps sooner than we think. Uh, there is certainly a lot of potential out there. Uh, it will, there isn't another India or China beyond those two, uh, but they will continue to be the major sources for the United States, and we certainly can never ignore them uh, as a major uh, source country for our for our our student bodies on campus, but also for future uh, relationships with government with uh, governments and institutions. You need to be open to that in both ways, and making sure that there's opportunities for bilateral exchange. Uh, I know there's opportunity. There will be opportunities for our students to go to China uh, this summer on a on a, pr a program that uh, uh, would be will very be very financially advantageous for our students to take advantage of uh, in terms of the ability for them to uh, get uh, exposed to to what China is these days. And I think that's um, an important piece of the puzzle that we we certainly don't want to ignore. So yes, Chinese students will return. So let's get to our final question of the day. What is transnational education? Now, transnational education has been around for, for decades. Uh, it's really something that I think uh, most in the U.S. Uh, don't really understand well. And there's a, I'll, I'll give you, share some data with you on, 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 these, on these points. But uh, transnational education, real experts on this are, are in the UK. UK and Australia are really miles ahead of us in, in all, all ways when it comes to what tra uh, delivering transnational education. Uh, the way the Brits define it, and I'm going to their definition, transnational education is education delivered in a country other than the country in which the, the awarding institution is based. For example, students based in the country Y studying for a degree from a university in country Z. UN, uh, the UK higher ed transnational education education refers to UK degree programs delivered outside the UK. And the way that these programs are delivered can be any number of ways. Uh, online distance learning, either with or without local support, through local delivery partnerships, uh, for example, franchise delivery, joint and dual degree programs, twinning arrangements, validation quality arrangements, or through UK, a UK institution's physical presence in another country. 
uh, branch campuses, study centers through flying, flying faculty. So that's how the Brits do it, uh, how they define it. And if you are wondering, they have right now 162, uh, if I can get the numbers out for you here, uh, they have, uh, I'm sorry, they have students, uh, <clears throat> let me see, 162 higher education providers indicating students were studying via t and &E was also the highest figure to date, up from 156 in the previous year. So six more UK institutions are now delivering uh, their degree programs uh, through transnational education. So uh, to give you perspective, that is most all. Uh, I would say in the UK we've got, uh, we say maybe 150, uh, in the UK 150 or so, that's about all of the UK universities are, are offering some sort of transnational education. So nearly 100%. In Australia, 38 of 42 university, Australian universities have registered some form of transnational education. So um, any guesses? Uh, in the U.S., we have uh, 77, 77 transnational education uh, branch campuses. Now, this is, this is the one piece that I don't have full data on, is how many uh, US, camp, US, uh, U.S. institutions have online or third-party degree type of d delivery of programs. Uh, out there, so that's a, that could be another mix. But even if it was triple that number, say 210, uh, that would be less than 5% of the total U.S. higher education population, institutional population. If you go conservatively with 4,000 institutions, and there were 2,000 or 200, uh, maybe uh, 200 uh, tra transnational education programs, universities doing transnational education. Uh, that would be 5%. Uh, we're not even scratching the surface of our potential when it comes to transnational education. We're amateurs at it. Uh, very few are doing it well. Uh, there are, uh, for example, Webster University. They've had campuses overseas for a couple, three decades uh, in multiple countries. Uh, you know, NYU has their Abu Dhabi and uh, Shanghai programs. Uh, Duke has their Kunshan campus in China. Uh, there's Education City in Doha, Qatar. That's what we're seeing on the World Cup uh, these days. Uh, there's um, U.S. institutions who have operations in Dubai, other places in the Gulf, Malaysia. Uh, but very, very few, we don't have a very big footprint internationally in terms of the U.S. when it comes to uh, overseas programs, delivery of our programs overseas. So uh, there are have been stu U.S. study abroad centers that don't really count in this mix because they're not d degree programs. Uh, their study abroad programs for partners. The, the real quantity that I don't know enough about is the, um, I don't think there's been a real s substantive report on this in terms of dual degree programs where uh, full degrees are being offered uh, through uh, other institutions overseas where our, our students, our, uh, students from other countries can go to their, uh, go to third party country, third countries or their own country if the, the U.S. institution has a partner university there for joint twin degree programs. And I don't have any data on the online programs. So uh, there could be more, but uh, obviously uh, when you say uh, a lot of the, uh, lot of the pub big publics in the United States have their Arizona Global, Purdue Global, UMC, UMUC Global, um, those are all 
online program delivery pro that may or may not be available overseas, whether they actively promote to overseas audiences, um, I doubt, but uh, that there are, there are certainly issues involved with delivery of your programs overseas, particularly if it's full degrees and that students who get a, a, a fully recognized degree from your institution fully taken online, that from their home country, there are tax implications, employment implications that need to be factored in, recognition of U.S. degrees online uh, that have need to be figured into whether you, uh, you should go out uh, actually be delivering those degrees in country. So the transnational education piece, again, the three levels, either online completely uh, through uh, partnership agreements, joint degree programs uh, where students can get your degree overseas, and then fully on fully branch campus oriented programs uh, or delivery of your programs through third parties. So those are those are the types of transnational education. Uh, the UK, as I mentioned, is kind of the granddaddy of them all uh, when it comes to this. The link I've just posted in the chat uh, give, gives a, a, the story of uh, how uh, UK higher ed. Uh, that what their footprint is for transnational education, and I've, I shared this uh, shared this fun fact with a, a friend the other day uh, when we're talking about about transnational education. When I was uh, actually on campus last week at, at UNLV, and shared that the UK uh, offers more degrees outside issues more degrees outside the UK every year than they do to students in the UK. So uh, that number works out to be, uh, in terms of students that are currently enrolled, uh, or at least in the most recent year's data for 2020-21, 510,835 students were studying in 228 countries and territories through UK transnational education programs. That's up 12.7% of the year before. So this is during the pandemic. So that might have had a little bit to do with the increase uh, in that some of those students that couldn't travel to the UK might have been uh, in, uh, able to, to begin their programs through uh, these UK universities that are set up, 162 of them outside the UK, uh, around the world where students could enroll. So the home off, while the home, home campus might not have been able to enroll them for visa issuance or travel restrictions, they could stay at a UK university in their country, uh, the equivalent. So um, a lot of those are in China. They have a, a major presence there, but they have transnational education locations around the world. Uh, in 228 countries and territories. Uh, some of that would obviously color, co cover a lot of the online uh, delivery of, of degree programs too. So uh, it is uh, enormous. Uh, it is, if we looked at our overall international population in the United States, we have about a million uh, right now. And for UK, they offer, <laughs> they have Five, half of that million we have, they have overseas, and they have another 600,000 that enroll in the UK. So combine those two together, they would have more than we do uh, in the United States if you look at transnational and in-country in, country, uh, in UK um, international student enrollment. So quite significant. We are way well behind in that respect and um, only, mild, only more work to do to get to where we uh, could be even be competitive with them on a regular basis. Australia has also been uh, active in international uh, transnational international branch campuses and uh, looking into other markets for where they can go. 
but um, there's been a move to get more engaged with uh, with India because of, uh, during the pandemic, uh, many Indian students uh, were forced to take their uh, Australian degrees fully on their mobile phones and pay basically as if they were in country for that privilege. So uh, that um, has led to some, maybe some eyes being open to what the potential is or not in India for transnational education. Uh, but what Australia's view of this is where uh, China has certainly uh, was a major focus of transnational education during the pandemic and still is for, uh, I think, 28% of Chinese, 28 to 30% of Chinese students uh, who enrolled in, U in Australian universities are still back in China uh, because they can't get visas or they can't get, tra get travel to come. So uh, for them, uh, we have, uh, uh, have a number of uh, established programs in China that are doing well, continuing to do well, uh, some that are doing them in uh, transnational locations through uh, in Singapore, other parts of East Asia, uh, and then we'll be, able, be in a better position to see what's next. But that's, uh, that's a lot of what's happening with uh, transnational education uh, in the United States and around the world. Again, a very small footprint for the United States, but the rest of the world is certainly uh, miles ahead of us in the Western world uh, with, with uh, certainly UK and Australia taking the lead. And uh, a lot of potential to grow in that area for the U.S. So hopefully your campus is exploring some of those options, uh, maybe starting small in one location and, and growing a footprint out there, uh, identifying countries that might be good places where you can do online delivery of your programs, where you, uh, you can work out the, the tax and legal and employment and, re and recognition uh, issues that are, are needed to, to make sure your, 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 your degrees are worth something uh, in the countries you want to deliver them in. And uh, that's, that's, that's what we have for you this week on the Roundup. And I look forward to chatting with you again uh, next week as we uh, look to the, uh, to the end of November and moving into December on the 30th. Uh, we look forward to connecting with you next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Until then, have a wonderful day.